Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at nortonsimon.org. Support for Alaist comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years of Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, with over 200 films May 1st through 10th. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. It's Film Week on LA is 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by critics Claudia Puig, who's also the program director for the Santa Barbara International Film Festival, and Manuel Betancourt, who's contributing editor at Film Quarterly. We begin with the long-awaited Martin Scorsese-directed film Killers of the Flower Moon. Eric Roth collaborated with Scorsese on the screenplay. It's adapted from the 2017 book of the same name, written by David Gran, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Lily Gladstone, Robert De Niro, and Jesse Plemons. Manuel, please start us on Killers of the Flower our moon. I I was so taken by this epic, sprawling uh, saga. You said long-awaited. We can also describe it as a very just long film. It's, <laughs> it's three and a half hours. But wow. I think it, it really merits that. It's this really um, epic saga following um, these murders of Osage Nation women in the 1920s. Uh, the Osage Nation had become sort of the richest people in the world, um, given the old money, oil money that they had found, or the oil they had found in their Land and of course, um, greedy men started marrying into their families uh, to sort of basically steal um, all of this money. So we follow uh, DiCaprio's Ernest as he gets entangled in a web of murder and deceit, um, just as he's also falling in love with uh, Lily Gladstone's character Molly, or he thinks he's falling in love. It's sort of it's this really weird thing because he loves her, but he's also clearly uh, doing not so great things that are affecting her family. Um, she's Osage. She's Osage, yeah. And so it's sort of this like gaslighter um, melodrama against this like huge, beautiful backdrop uh, of this historical and kind of um, forgotten history that I think it'll be uh, news for a lot of people and it'll be enraging. It is very frustrating to watch um, sort of yet again uh, a story of um, indigenous people sort of being robbed and pillaged and murdered um, for what's rightfully theirs. Killers of the Flower Moon from Martin Scorsese. What did you think, Claudia? I liked it a lot. Um, you know, the film's most radical departure from David Grant's true crime drama, which is a fantastic book, too, is that it kind of goes from being this murder mystery procedural to kind of a Western slash crime story slash kind of dark, ill-fated romance. And, and when I was talking about the Lily Gladstone character, it's anchored by these performances by Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, who I think it's among their best performances. But Lily That's Gladstone, saying something. it is, <laughs> it is saying a lot. Um, Lily Gladstone, I think the movie belongs to her. Uh, she broke out in uh, 2016 with certain women, and she is hauntingly moving here. This is a very unsettling, absorbing true crime portrait. It's about power and greed and legacy and racism and um, sometimes it seems like it may even go over the line a little bit with its gruesome depictions of violence but 
my issue with it was of the three and a half hours for two and a half hours I was loving it um it's so gorgeously shot it's beautifully scored it's superbly acted in the last about 40 45 minutes or so I began to think it was a little meandering and it went from being exhilarating and compelling and sprawling but also delicate to kind of just dissipating a little bit taking some of that power and and kind of in some ways, not squandering it, but it just didn't quite stick the landing for me. I was really immersed. But then we get to the courtroom drama culmination, and it just feels anticlimactic. And there were some cameos that <laughs> um, that feel like stunt casting. Um, yeah. And so that was a distraction. Um, but it, it's it's amazing. And there's a little final coda, I think, that that's like a finale that didn't fully work for me. But having said this, I mean, it's still an amazing film. It has his, you know, Scorsese's trademark visual flair. He captures the thrum of life in that Osage community. And then also the sense that, like, the the era of, like, the kind of old West is ending and there's this modern thing going on. And then we also find out that this was only 65 miles away from where the Tulsa riots were. So right. we, you know, get a sense of how people of color had achieved wealth and status and, and then how white people just couldn't deal with it and, and you know, came in and, and tried to destroy it. Um Anyway, it's 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 really really a powerful story, and um, it's a great look at capitalism and the scourge of racism. And um, just wish it were a little bit shorter. <laughs> Killers of the Flower Moon is in wide release, directed by and co-written by Martin Scorsese, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Lily Gladstone, and Robert De Niro. The film in English and in Sioux as well. It's rated R, ultimately to appear on Apple TV Plus. Documentarian Errol Morris, of course, one of our most famous documentary filmmakers for many, many years. His latest is The Pigeon Tunnel, and it tells about the remarkable real life of the man who was known as John Le Carre, the espionage uh, novel writer who lived quite uh, a life himself. David Cornwell stars as Le Carre, who died just about three years ago. Claudia, what did you think of the Pigeon Tunnel? I think it's one of Errol Morris's best, and that's saying a lot because (laughs) I I really don't think he's made a bad one. Um, Visually, directorially, if not quite thematically, but um, to me, one of the marks of a great documentary is if it involves you and immerses you in a subject that you don't think you'd be interested in. Um, And... I've never read anything by John Le Carre. It's not my genre of literature. They so. have made some great films. Made oh, of I, and novels. I've seen the films. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And and some of the clips of those are in the, are in this. But I just thought it might be a little too specific for me, and that it wouldn't be something that I would love as much as some of his other films. And that is not true. Um, <laughs> it turns out that it was compelling from the first frame. You know, I did know a little bit about John Le Carre. I knew about the you know the fact that he had been in MI5. Um, uh, and, but what I knew very little compared to, and for those who do know quite a bit, I think um, he wrote a memoir in 2016 called The Pigeon Tunnel. So I don't know that people are going to learn that much more if you're already a completist. But um, this is he's, you get this, you realize that these are two people at the top of their game. Uh, Morris is just such a master interviewer, and um, Le Carre or Cornwell is just such a great storyteller. I love his, the way he speaks. He's in control of the interview in a lot of ways, like, and how he's being presented. His diction is perfect. He seems so bemused. He speaks in perfect paragraphs. Um, and, but you also get some really revealing moments. You find out a lot about his con man father, and um, he's just such a great raconteur. 
tour, you feel grateful for what he does divulge. We're talking about David Cornwell, also known as John Le Carre, uh, The Pigeon Tunnel from director Errol Morris. Manuel, what did you think? Yeah, I think this is fantastic. And I think one of the things that makes it a fantastic documentary is that Morris and Cornwell understand the interview as an interrogation. Mm-hmm. So they're constantly playing this cat and mouse game where Morris says, should I be asking this? Like, should I really be pushing it? It's like, well, if you really wanted to push me, you would have asked this, but I won't tell you. That. And there's this sense of like there's this push and pull that Cornwell has. He's a storyteller. So he's already shaped all of these childhood stories, father stories. And Morris keeps trying to push him into being a little bit more self-aware. There's one thing he says he doesn't want to talk about, which is his sex life, which if you know anything about him and what came out after he published the memoir which is he had a lot of illicit secret affairs all throughout his marriage, which he was able to do because he was a spy at heart. Um, that's like the big blind spot of the film. But he tells you that. And so okay. it's this, he's so erudite and he's so gripping. And there's also this amazing Philip Glass and Paul Leonard Morgan mm. score that really makes you feel like it's a thrilling spy thing, even though it's a conversation between two people, which is often what spy novels are. It's like, I'm interviewing you and what are you going to tell me and how am I going to get you to trust me? And so in terms of form, uh, it really matches its subject matter. So cat and mouse interview sort of imitating the cat and mouse um, screenplays and novels. Exactly. I love that. Pigeon Tunnel is the documentary directed by the great Errol Morris. It's rated PG-13. You can see it at Lemley's NoHo in North Hollywood and also streaming on Apple TV+. Uh, We'll just get started very briefly and then come back to More Than Ever, which is a French drama starring Vicky Creeps. Uh, The film is directed and co-written by Emily Atif. Manuel, just quickly, More Than Ever. I think I love this. This is a tender, bruising film about living and dying with dignity, about a woman who getting a terminal diagnosis decides that she's just going to go to Norway and die with like die in her own terms, which is very hard for her husband uh, who clearly wants her to stay and clearly wants her to fight. Um, And creeps continues to be a transfixing screen presence. uh, And this is just another uh, amazing performance to notch in her like continuing and budding canon of films that we're going to get from her. We'll come back and hear more from Manuel about more than ever, given how much she loves this film. Claudia, did you see it similarly? Uh, I Very much so. Yeah, I think Vicky is amazing. And um, Gaspard Ulliel was also very good. And he um, He's the tragically died Yeah, last year. So it has the a, actor that, died. The oh. actor died in a skiing accident. Um, so it has that extra layer of poignance because it's all it's about death um, and kind of acceptance of that. Um, and coming to terms with it and and Yeah, we'll talk more. We'll talk more. More than ever. We'll come back to it. The French drama. It is at Lemley's Monica Film Center in Santa Monica. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. Larry Mantle with critics uh, Manuel Betancourt and Claudia Puig. Support for LAist comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. (laughs) 
Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on four consecutive Fridays starting May 10th. More information at nortonsimon.org. So good to have you with us on Film Week on LAS 89.3. Thank you for all the support in the fall member drive right here on LAS 89.3. I'm joined by critics Claudia Puig and Manuel Betancourt. Next up, uh, what we've been talking about before the break, but very briefly, the French drama More Than Ever, starring Vicky Creeps and Gaspar Uliel, uh, who tragically passed away after the completion of, of this film. Emily Atef is the director and co-screenwriter with Lars Bubrick. Uh, Manuel, please elaborate on, on what you love. And you mentioned Vicky Creeps and her terrific acting and screen presence, but what, what else touched you about this film? I think as a, as a meditation on death and dying, I found it very, very poignant. What you soon realize is that the reason this woman decides to leave her life and her husband and her job and her friends who all want to be very supportive is because she can't stand, um, she wants to grieve on her own terms, not the life she had, but the life she could have had. And seeing other people witness her grief makes it even harder for her to not want to die, which is sort of this like very counterintuitive sort of thing so that she feels that if she can be alone, she can make peace with how she wants to go. Uh, and I, I just found that so, so very moving and bruising and tender. And she's and they're just the, the two actors are just fantastic. And it sounds different than ways we we think of death being dealt with we've had so many and some really fine films about death what couples go through or families but this sounds like a little bit of a different psychological journey yeah it's a little bit more bittersweet more more melancholy um yeah it's 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 weird that it's hopeful (laughs) despite it uh sort of being very very dour and given the decision that she makes we're talking about more than ever claudia yeah at one point her husband says to her that's not how it's supposed to be you're supposed to be surrounded by your family and loved ones and that's how how we all tend to think and she says you know you don't understand your being there makes me think of the life that we couldn't have or that would that would we would not have had and it was a really interesting way to to approach it and it was also a, a mark of like true love that somebody would allow someone to choose how they're going to die. I mean, in his mind, he sh- she should go through medical interventions and do everything she can to stay alive. And that's not what she wanted to do. And for him to kind of give her that um, agency or that, that grace, I thought was really, really moving. Um, and it's beautifully acted. It was apparently inspired by um, Emily Atef, the writer-director's uh, uh, mother's uh, battle with multiple sclerosis. Um, and then also the the Norwegian part is mm-hmm. just beautiful. It's out in this beautiful countryside with fjords. And, um, you know, you see her appreciation for nature, even though she's really struggling. She has this pulmonary fibrosis and she can barely breathe. And she does that really well. Yeah. Uh, also, it's just, it's a really good film. I lost a friend to pulmonary fibrosis. Oh, no. Very, very difficult. More Than Ever is unrated, starring Vicky Creeps. It's at Lemley's Monica Film Center in Santa Monica. 
Beyond Utopia is a biographical documentary which looks at families as they attempt to flee North Korea. Madeline Gavin is the director. Claudia? Yeah, this is a really good documentary. It's harrowing, intense, um, and important. It's um, The documentary uh, follows several North Koreans trying to defect, and this very brave South Korean pastor who helps them in this perilous process. And um, so the director, Madeline Gavin, is presumably embedded, or, or her camera is embedded. I'm still not entirely sure how it was done. But there's archival footage as well and animation and this hidden uh, video um, that follows this one family of fives uh, process crossing many countries to, to get to safety in South Korea. Um, you know, and, and at the same time, she's got to give you a little bit of a primer on South Korea and, you know, the kind of oppression faced there. Um, I was fascinated by the pastor who, you know, risked his own life to do this and, um, you know, kind of what his motivations were. I thought he was the emotional center of the movie. He kind of deserved his own documentary. Um, but there were some really compelling scenes of this family of five, and you have, you know, the husband and wife anxious to leave, and then you have an 80-year-old grandmother who doesn't quite want to leave, and then two children who say things like, Kim Jong-un is the greatest person ever because they've been indoctrinated. In school. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, and so, you know, you're, you're watching all of this and how they're going to, you know, figure it all out and negotiate that. And then there's another person, um, Sion Lee, who defected 10 years ago and had to leave behind a young son. So she's helping her son now that he's... Uh, and close to 20 and that's perilous and unfortunately that part she's mostly on the phone and you're thinking okay this isn't as powerful as seeing people escape through you know rivers and forests and stuff however the emotions that play out on her face are so um, illuminating and how she processes this grim information these personal stories are really riveting and I think she did a great job with a very complicated and the stakes are so high oh my gosh yeah death Beyond Utopia is the documentary and it's going to be in select theaters Monday and Tuesday of next week then on Friday November 3rd it'll expand to more theaters uh, Beyond Utopia is rated PG-13 directed by Madeline Gavin it's a busy week for documentaries we have yet another one a.k.a. Mr. Chow, about the rest retour of Mr. Chow fame. Uh, director is Nick Hooker, and this is going to be streaming on Max uh, coming up starting Sunday and will also be at the Lemley Royal in West Los Angeles on the big screen. Manuel, what did you think of A.K.A. Mr. Chow? This is a documentary as dazzling as Michael Chow. So if you've been to any of his restaurants, <laughs> Beverly Hills and London and in New York, you know that he's a maximalist. You know that he's a dynamic storyteller. He loves art. He's sort of larger than life. Uh, and he guides you. He's, re- he's front and center in the first first frame he's like directing and saying name a movie I'll tell you the first frame of that movie and he does and he like just like oh, Lawrence Arabia this is how Lawrence Arabia starts and you need you you need a good first frame and you need a good start and he's constantly uh, so charming and enchanting and you're just sort of so drawn to him uh, that you somehow get to hear a story about how he was you know shuttled out of Shanghai when Mao is taking over and how he lost a lot of his family during the Cultural Revolution, how he lost his first wife to AIDS uh, in 1992. Uh, And so there's a lot of, even though there's, it's like there's flashiness and there's a story of like how he became sort of Mr. Chow and how he built that brand. There's a lot of really darker moments. And uh, one of the things I wished is the documentary pushed him a little harder because he's so embellished and so so created sort of this persona 
that he sort of shuts down when anything gets a little bit um, hard and he turns away and he says, you know, my silence is my answer. Um, but I love the interplay and there's some fascinating interviews um, so that if even if you don't know anything about Mr. Chow, which I did not, uh, I was wholly entertained because uh, I think that's sort of what he what he knows how to do best, which is blending that sort of storytelling and artistic. And that's how he lives his life. Sort of the, for the restaurateur, this is like the greatest thing to have this <laughs> story to tell. And there was a guy, there was a restaurant many years ago that was favorite of Hollywood called Romanoff's. Mm-hmm. And he said that he was a count and all these celebrities. It was a completely fabricated story, <laughs> but everybody just, you know, it was Hollywood. Everybody took it at, at, um, at, at face level. And anyway, it just, um, it's a documentarian's dream, I'm sure, to have a subject oh, yeah. like Mr. Chow. Yeah, and it, especially because in, both in the 60s and 70s in London and then in here with Hollywood and then in New York, he was so enmeshed with the art scene. So you have Fran Lebowitz on the on the documentary. You have Julian Schnabel on the documentary. You have all these people. He, he was friends with Keith Haring and Basquiat went to uh, his restaurant and everyone talks about how he really made these like welcoming space that all that mattered was that you led a creative life and you wanted sort of your food in your restaurant to be as exciting as the music video or as your art and he's been collecting art for decades and decades on end and now he's an artist in his own right uh, and so that's sort of where the documentary sort of ends with his like what he says you know a lot of people have third acts movies have third acts I'm in my fifth act <laughs> <laughs> aka Mr. Chow is the documentary from director Nick Cooker again Lemley's Royal in West LA and starts uh, streaming this Sunday on Mac Pain Hustlers is a comedic drama starring Emily Blunt, Chris Evans, uh, Catherine O'Hara is always terrific. David Yates, the director, Wells Tower, wrote the screenplay. It's adapted from the Evan Hughes book, Pain Hustlers, Crime and Punishment at an Opioid Startup. Claudia, your thoughts on Pain Hustlers? Yeah, it was a mixed bag for me. I mean, this is clearly a serious and important subject, big pharma's role in the opioid epidemic. Um, And it's dealt with in kind of a lively, accessible way, but also quite uneven. Um, Stylistically and pacing-wise, it kind of reminds me a little bit of like The Wolf of Wall Street or Moneyball, those kind of movies. But it doesn't have the (laughs) finesse of those. And it doesn't have that much that feels new to say. It feels kind of formulaic in how it says it. But there are some really good committed performances um, when we find ourselves rooting for Emily Blunt's character. I I was thinking about another movie that came out about pharmaceutical reps. Remember the one with uh, Anne Hathaway and Jake Gyllenhaal? Yes, yeah. That was 2010. And that was... It was more lighthearted and romantic because it was about Prozac and Viagra and not fentanyl. <laughs> right. uh, not something that will kill you. But um, So the lively story also is interspersed with these serious kind of black and white comments of patients talking about you know, their addiction or, or what's happened, their teeth falling out to the camera. And these interstitial scenes really didn't work with the sort of kind of style that the rest of the film was. It felt disjointed and like it was in another movie. So it had some real tonal issues. Um, I was not. And that accent of Chris Evans, that Jersey, Bostonian, <laughs> By way of who knows, Maine <laughs> was a bit much. Manuel Payne Hustlers. Yeah, this uh, tonally, it's all over the place, and I it, it never quite lands on what it wants to be. But I will say, Emily Blunt is fantastic. Yeah. I will follow her wherever, and she really walks a tightrope and manages to find 
um, the lighthearted and the more drama, and I just wish the movie were at her level. All right, Payne Hustler is the film starring Emily Blunt, Chris Evans, David Yates directed Wells Tower wrote it. It's rated R. You can see it at Lemley's NoHo and the Town Center 5 in Encino, and it starts streaming next Friday on Netflix. More to come with our critics in just a moment. It's Film Week on LAST 89.3. Larry Mantle with critics Manuel Betancourt and Claudia Puig. So good to have you with us today. Next up is the biographical drama Nyad, which tells the story of the gifted swimmer Diana Nyad, known for her long-distance swimming uh, between Cuba and Florida, as well as other epic swims like to Catalina Island from Southern California. Uh, the film stars Jodie Foster as Nyad, uh, Annette Benning also, actually Benning, I guess, yes, plays yes. Nyad, yeah. excuse me. <laughs> Jodie Foster plays uh, her very good friend, uh, and Jimmy Chin, Elizabeth uh, Chai uh, Vassarelli uh, are the directors of the film. They're, of course, uh, known for the documentary Free Solo. Manuel, what did you think of uh, the biographical drama Nyad? This is um, a crowd pleaser. And I will say that in both the positive and the negative sense. I think this is, if you know Nyad's story or if you've ever watched any sports drama where like people have to train really hard and then they'll win the game and you, you, you're wondering what's going to happen at the third act. Like I think you know what's going to happen at the third act. Uh, and in that sense, uh, it feels very by the numbers. But one of the things that I really, really enjoy is Benning and Foster who have crackling chemistry as these two they're they're playing older queer women who have been friends for decades and they decide that uh you know this marathon swim is a thing that naya's going to do at 60 even though she failed to do it when she was 28 ideally at the height of her physical prowess but as benning who's like sort of gruff and has a kind of superiority complex keeps telling us it's not about the body it's about the mind if i if i set myself to it i will make it happen and that becomes sort of the message of the film that uh, failure is basically um, a failure of imagination that if you just set yourself to it and if you just work hard, you will succeed, which is great and inspiring and also kind of grating. And I think the film understands that. And the film goes back and forth between seeing Nyad as sort of this like foolish woman who failure after failure says, you know, let's go again. Oh, I got stung by jellyfish. Let's do that again. Oh, the, there's there are sharks coming. I can figure that out. Oh, I'm going to not be able to sleep and I need to like sing sing to myself to keep myself awake. Um, I will do it. Um, but also how that costs her a lot and how that kind of sort of can-do attitude can be very grating to those around you who just say, let's just step back and maybe we yeah. don't need to do this. Um and so that I really enjoyed and the chemistry between the two of them and the two actresses are sort of are, are at the top of her game. Um, and the filmmakers really bring that nonfiction documentary sensibility to the film and make it really dynamic and really make it feel kind of different. And uh, it's helped a lot by uh, their DP, Claudio Miranda, who did Life of Pi and he won an Oscar for that. And so he's he really finds ways of making, you know, Annette Benning swimming <laughs> kind of interesting and kind of gripping. Uh, when it's in the middle of the night and when there might be sharks coming and when um, she might be having sort of a um, an asthma attack in the, in the water. That's all very gripping. But it often, but then at the end to me, it all, we know where it's going. 
Uh, L.A. Times did a, a really good story about how Nyad herself uh, is such a polarizing figure in the distant swimming community. Mm-hmm. She's a very big personality yes. and and talks about herself a lot. And there are people who feel like that that she's uh, been grandiose in how she's described described herself. Um, but it sounds like Benning's performance kind of gets at that big personality. What did you think, Claudia? Benning's performance definitely gets at that. Um, yeah, I agree with pretty much everything you said, Manuel. It's it's a fairly formulaic story, as inspirational sports movies are. But the fact that it's about older queer women, I think that's the key here, because really, they're rarely seen in movies, period, and virtually never seen in inspirational sports movies. Mm-hmm. I can't think of any. Um, so that feels refreshing and new. And then these performances are just superb. Um, you know, as kind of grating as Annette Benning's character is, then you have Jodie Foster's character, who's so warm and engaging and charismatic that, you know, the two of them work so well together. And there, you can see she's been sort of put upon. She's her best friend, but, you know, she's uh, oftentimes Naya doesn't tell her thank you. And in fact, she's going to be very high handed with her. Um, and it's just really interesting to watch their dynamic of their friendship, which is complex. And then it's also really great to see two amazing actors, two, arguably two of the best actors out there, aging gracefully and naturally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're not made up. They're not Botox. It's a van- vanity-free performances, which I loved. Um, and they bring a, a lot of dimension and depth to their characters. Um, and then Reese Ifans as this navigator is also really good, John Bartlett. Um, and then some of those underwater shots are really powerful when the shark is heading for her and there's mm-hmm. some harrowing scenes. Um, so to, I, when I looked at it as a story of friendship, I liked it that much more. Yeah. That sounds that sounds nice. As you say, the two leads are so talented and and underutilized these days. Absolutely, it's, it's great to see Benning and and Foster get this opportunity. Nyad is the film, uh, and it's rated PG thirteen. You can see it at the landmark Sunset in West Hollywood or the landmark Pasadena Playhouse. It also be streaming starting on November third on Netflix. The Persian version is a romantic comedic drama starring Leila Mohammadi and uh, Kaman Shafisbet. Uh, the film is written and directed by Maryam uh, Keshavars. What did you think, Claudia, of the Persian version? You know, this won the Audience Award at Sundance this year, and Keshavars is this only this, the first person to ever win twice uh, the Audience Award. Wow. She won for Circumstance, which um, has banned her from ever returning to Iran because it was about this underground youth culture. There's a really great dance sequence. Probably the highlight of it for me was this Persianized version of Cindy Lauper's "Girls Just Want to Have Fun" with like a sitar and stuff. It was, and it's just it's kind of almost Bollywood-esque. It's really fun. This is a very ambitious semi-autobiographical tale, and it has like a jot of magical realism. It looks great. The a very vibrant production design occasionally drags a bit, and it kind of tries to jam a lot into this one story. Um, the protagonist, Layla, is played by uh, Layla Mohammadi, Mohammadi, and she has eight brothers. They all kind of fit like stereotypes, which is not great. Um, she's queer and she's recently broken up with her wife and um, she has this rift with her mother but then there's like the final I don't know if it's the final third but a big portion of the film is about her mother back in Iran and that doesn't quite mesh with the other story which is set in New York um, but there's some moments that really resonate, such as when she deals with her identity as the daughter of an immigrant. She said she feels too Iranian in America and too American in Iran. And I think that sentiment, for those of us who are 
you know, children of immigrants, we can relate to that. And I think that she, I wish she'd explored that maybe just a little bit more, but I, I appreciated that. A movie feels a little overstuffed. And because of that, it feels, it can feel a little like messy and disjointed. But I did like the idea of her balancing the two cultures. Um, as I said, I love that rendition of the song. And it has kind of a buoyant feel. And I love the title, too. I think it's a great title. The Persian <laughs> Version just rolls off the tongue. It is, <laughs> yes. it is a great title. Written and directed by Maryam Kashavars. Uh, it's rated R. And you can see it at AMC The Grove and AMC Century City Theaters and Lemley's Royal in West Los Angeles. Finally this week, the music documentary Millie Vanilli. Luke Corum, the director. Manuel? This is a wild documentary, and if you know anything about Millie Vanilli, it just makes sense that it is, because <laughs> this is one of the greatest um, con stories in, I think, the music industry writ large. Uh, so Millie Vanilli were these, uh, you know, Rob and Fab, this duo from Europe, um, who took the world by storm in 1989 uh, with their songs and number ones, and they had these dances, and they were, like, beautiful and had dreads and shoulder Built pads. Built for, for MTV. Yes. Oh, my God, they were. And they <laughs> and then they won the Grammy for Best New Artist, and then it turned out that they were lip-syncing all along, that they weren't the accredited uh, singers on their album or their singles, and they sort of knowingly had conned everyone. And so this documentary sort of pulls um, the curtain back to sort of figure out how it happened, who knew when, what was Clive Davis and did Arista Records know and did they actually hide this or was it all happening in Europe, elsewhere? Um, and it also follows the fallout. Um, so if you love Millie Vanilli or you love con stories, this is the music documentary for you this weekend. Millie Vanilli, <laughs> the uh, musical biographical film, is streaming on Paramount Plus starting next Tuesday. It's unrated. For our Film Week critics, uh, Claudia Puig and Manuel Betancourt, I'm Larry Mantle. Thanks so much for supporting us during our fall member drive. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.